You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Echoes from the Past, Pictures of the Future, Episode 14, with Daniel Pell. Welcome to our very last presentation in this series, Echoes from the Past and Pictures of the Future. We've come to the end of our journey. I hope it will not be the end of your journey of studying the Bible and studying prophecies, but for this presentation series, we have come to the last lecture. And uh, we're going to look at the final chapters of the book of Revelation. And I'm excited because these chapters are indeed closing on a very high note. They are beautiful chapters, wonderful chapters that give hope and encouragement, inspiration, motivation to Christian, to the Christian walk. And as we walk with Christ, it just empowers us and propels us forward as we read about what God has in store for us. And so we'll get right into that tonight. And before we do so, let's ask the Lord to be with us as we invite His Spirit to guide us during this last study together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for being with us throughout this series. We want to thank you that we can now um, look at the final chapters of the book of Revelation and we ask that you will guide us and that your Spirit may instruct us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our title for tonight's presentation is A Restored Kingdom. A Restored Kingdom. When we started out in the book of Daniel and chapter 1, we read about a captivity that the prophet Daniel was taken into exile into Babylon. And we closed the book of Revelation, which is the twin book of the book of Daniel, with an ultimate restoration of a kingdom. Not of an earthly kingdom, but of a heavenly kingdom. A kingdom that will never, ever be conquered. A kingdom that will last for eternity. It is a beautiful picture that Revelation closes with. Because when you look at all the earthly powers and earthly kingdoms that have reigned throughout time, both in the books of Daniel Revealed and in the book of Revelation, we see over and over again, time and time again, that these nations are corrupted by the forces at work in the human heart. There are kings that rise up against kings. There are wars and there are calamities that transpire over the ages. And when we come to the end of all things, when Jesus Christ returns, sin is destroyed, sin is removed, and this world is recreated, and we have a restored kingdom. And so let's look at those final chapters. We turn our attention to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 18, the, the chapter previous to 19, we have the fall of Babylon, the utter fall of this um, system of false worship. And then Revelation 19, we read and we study about this great, great event, the coming of Christ himself. Now, the picture that we encounter in Revelation chapter 19 is a picture of victory, a picture of the power of Christ and the overcoming power that he possesses as he rides upon this white horse as, as, as he is uh, depicted in Revelation 19. I would like to read a couple of verses here from the 19th chapter beginning in verse 11. Revelation 19 beginning in verse 11. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. 
He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And in the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God, and, on, and, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then you read the rest of the chapter, how the beast and his armies and the powers of this world are defeated before this coming king. Now, John understood this picture very well. John, um, receiving this vision, understood what it meant when he saw a white horse galloping across the sky here. Because in ancient times, when two nations would go to battle with each other, the nation that would conquer would ride with a white horse and would gallop across the battlefield as signifying that they were the one that had the victory. So a white horse was a symbol of victory. And so the white horse in Revelation here is really a type of victory. It's a picture of victory. Christ and the host of heavens are now coming. Remember how we read there that during the sixth and seventh plague, we have the description there of the kings of the east that would dry up the river of Euphrates. Just like in Babylon when the kings of the east came and they conquered Babylon and released the people of God. So in the end of time, we will be released from this Babylonian world when Christ as king of the east comes and dries up that river Euphrates, symbolically, prophetically speaking, and makes the way for this final deliverance, this final restoration of God's kingdom. Right after uh, Revelation chapter 19, we are launched into another incredible prophecy, which is often referred to as the millennium prophecy. This is the prophecy of Revelation chapter 20. And Revelation chapter 20 is the final battle that we read about in Scripture. Now, I want you to take notice of this incredible structure of Scripture. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis in the beginning, you will read two chapters in the book of Genesis about the creation in the beginning. Everything is perfectly created. God creates man. God creates a perfect world. There's a perfect relationship between God and man. There's no sin. There's no suffering. There's no death. There's no sorrow. That's the picture of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Then in Genesis chapter 3, we have the picture of sin entering into the world. As man decides to eat of the forbidden fruit and rather turns away from God. And so the, the world, we could say, is hijacked by the devil himself and is now plunged into a scene of sin. And this scene of battle, this battle of the ages, this great controversy continues all the way to the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 20, this, the chapter we're going to study right now, we have the final battle, the battle of Gog and Magog, as it is known, which utterly does away with the devil and all his hosts, all his armies of evil. And the last two chapters of the Bible again, introduce us to a world in which there is no sin, no suffering, and in which there is no death and no sorrow, and where we, again, have face-to-face -face, um, communication with Jesus Christ himself. So we have here a picture of 
the Eden that has been lost in the beginning and the Eden that is going to be restored in the end. We have two chapters of a perfect Eden in the beginning. We have two chapters of a perfect restored Eden in the end, a restored kingdom. And interestingly enough, both those two chapters are bookmarked by the fall and the final battle or this final overthrow, this final um, defeat of evil, which we read about in the Millennium Prophecy of Revelation 20. So there's, a, there's an incredible structure in Scripture. Uh, we have already seen an incredible structure throughout the prophecies, and certainly there's divine wisdom in this book. It's no coincidence that these things are like they are. You must remember that these are not written by the same people. You could say, well, if one person wrote it all, he would have that in mind. But this is not the fact with the Bible. The Bible is written by, more, by approximately 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years. Different continents, different places, different backgrounds, different cultures. And yet all coming together in this common theme of salvation, in this common theme of showing the great controversy with all its consequences. And so it's very powerful to see the structure of the Bible and the structure of the book of Revelation. So we turn our attention to the millennium prophecy of Revelation chapter 20. Now the word millennium is not found in the Bible, but what millennium means is a thousand years. Uh, mila from, um, comes from the Latin, it's a Latin word which means a thousand, annium meaning years. So we have the thousand year prophecy in Revelation chapter 20. Now let's take a, note, take a look at this prophecy in Revelation chapter 20. And we read the first verses there, verse 1 to 6. Listen to what the Bible says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had worshipped the beast or his image, who had not, sorry, worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or, in their, or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Quite a number of events that transpire in this prophecy. The devil is taken and he is bound. He is cast into the bottomless pit. Then we have the great resurrection that it's talking about. We talk, we're talking here about the saints that will reign in heaven, that will sit upon thrones, that judgment will be committed to them. Now, when do all these events start to transpire? When will these begin to take place? So that's our first question regarding this prophecy of Revelation chapter 20. Which events mark the beginning of the 1,000 year prophecy of the 1,000 years? The beginning is the second coming of Christ. Actually, when you look at the Revelation story, though not everything is in chrono chronological order, the three last chapters are clearly in chronological order. Revelation 19, dealing with the second coming of Christ and the final victory, as Jesus is depicted there on the white horse, 
and coming as king of kings and lord of lords, then the very next event in Revelation 20 is the final battle or the millennium prophecy. And then you have the new world or the new earth uh, created in Revelation 21 and 22. So clearly the last uh, four chapters there are chronological order. And when Christ comes, the millennium prophecy begins. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 17, it describes the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it talks about a resurrection. Just like in the millennium prophecy, we read about the resurrection. Now take notice of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is an incredible hope to the Christian, these verses here. Verse 13 to 17, the Bible says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. What are we to not be ignorant of? Concerning those who have fallen asleep, that you may not sorrow as others. Now, Paul here that writes this letter to the church of Thessalonica is not talking about those that took a nap. He's not talking about those that are just sleeping during the night. He's talking about those that have passed away, those that have died. In the Bible, death is often referred to as asleep. He says, don't, don't um, sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In other words, uh, it's, it's going to happen all together. The resurrection, as is, as is described in just a moment, is going to happen. And then together, we that are on the earth will meet the Lord in the air. Listen to how he continues. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So when Jesus Christ comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords, this trumpet will sound, and can you imagine that event? Can you imagine the graves will open up, and there will be this massive, great resurrection of the saints, resurrection of those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And when they are raised, together with those that are alive at the coming of Christ, they will be transported. They will meet the Lord in the air. That's what the prophecy, that's what the scripture tells us here in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the beginning of the millennium prophecy. When Jesus Christ comes again, there will be a great resurrection. This is the resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And what a day that will be as families will be united, as loved ones that parted at one point will now be united again. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4, the Bible says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ comes, this body will be transformed and our mortal bodies will be clothed in immortality. And the Bible tells us that, that, that in, uh, in a twinkle of an eye, this will happen. The bodies that are now so prone to sickness and are so weak will then be strong and vital and eternal. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8, it talks about those that have not um, received the loving invitation of Jesus Christ, who have cast away that um, gospel message. When Christ comes again, they will be consumed with the brightness of his coming. Listen to this verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. 
And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So the very appearance of Jesus when he comes the second time will utterly destroy those that have not put their faith in him. Now take notice of the events as we sum them up here. This is the events that trigger the beginning of the thousand-year prophecy of the millennium prophecy of Revelation chapter 20. We have the second coming of Jesus Christ. Then we have the dead in Christ that will, be ri- that will rise at the second coming. Then we have the living saints that are translated. And finally, we have the ungodly that were alive at the second coming that perish. This events all described there in scripture in a variety of scriptures that point to the beginning of now this thousand year prophecy, the millennium prophecy in heaven. Question number two, where will the saved and redeemed be during the thousand years? Will they be here on earth, as some say, or will they be on some other planet, or will they be in heaven? Where will they be? Well, the Bible tells us in John chapter 14, listen to the words of Jesus here in John 14. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now, Jesus said this when he was with his disciples on earth. He left his disciples. He went to heaven. He's preparing a place in heaven. And the Bible says when he comes again, he will receive us to himself that where he is, we may be also. That's not going to be on this earth, but that is the place that he's preparing, which is in heaven, which of course corresponds with our prophecy in Revelation chapter 20, because in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, and let me read it again to you here, it tells us where the saints will be. It says, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who would not worship the beast or his image. And had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. They're living and reigning with Christ a thousand years in the very place that Christ has prepared for them. The mansions that he has prepared for them. The place that he promised he would be together with us when he comes. Now, this place, this judgment scene is quite a scene in heaven because uh, it, it is in heaven because really when you think about it, if the saints would be on this earth, it wouldn't really be a pretty place because when you read about the final scenes of earth's history, when you read about the final prophecies that will unfold here on earth, certainly there's going to be a lot of destruction that takes place. This world is not going to be a very pretty place after you read, for example, about the seven last plagues that will be poured out upon this earth. So where will the devil be during the thousand years? If the saints are in heaven, if those that are resurrected and, 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 and living are translated to heaven, then where will the devil be during those thousand years? Well, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, this verse is here not on the screen, but let me read it for you. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. So the devil is going to be bound by this angel and he is going to be chained and he's cast into what the Bible calls the bottomless pit. 
Now, that word bottomless pit, we looked at it earlier. It is really coming from the word abyssos, which means, which was also referring to the earth before it was created, when it was void and without form. The question is, what is this bottomless pit where the devil is bound? You know, that word abyssos, we find all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, referring to the world before it was even created. And isn't it interesting that when the final events happen in Bible prophecy and the final destruction takes place upon this earth, that this earth is basically brought back to the very period before it was created or before it was uh, God spoke light into existence, before the world was, was, was made as God made it for the inhabitants of humanity. Now, look at what happens in those final scenes of earth's history. Revelation 16, verse 17 and 18 says... Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not been occurred uh, as has not occurred since men were on the earth, then every island fled away and the mountains were not found and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. Now imagine that, this is, the, call it, this is talking about the seventh plague. Imagine the impact of this plague upon this earth. I mean, we're talking about hailstones, the weight of a talent. This is an incredible um, devastation, an earthquake such as not has been. Well, you know, we've seen some big earthquakes um, in recent times, an earthquake that has not even been. This extent of this devastation would really cause this world to look like a bottomless pit, like an abyssos, where nothing is left. This is the very place where the devil himself is bound, according to prophecy, for a thousand years. Jeremiah the prophet also depicted the state of this world during the thousand years. And his language is interesting. Look at Jeremiah 4, verse 23 to 26. It says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. Then we have the same language, without form and void, abusos. And the heavens, they had no light. Wow, there was no light. I beheld the mountains. Remember that, that Jesus said in the beginning, there was light. Now there is no light. They, um, I beheld the mountains and indeed they trembled and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld and indeed, and indeed there was no man and all the birds of the heavens had fled. Now how could that be that there was no man? Well, just think about it. When Jesus Christ came, the righteous that were living were translated to heaven. The, the resurrected ones were translated to heaven. The wicked ones were destroyed by the coming of Christ. There is no one left. There is no man. And the devil is bound to this bottomless pit, this, this abusos, this, this earth that is devastated for a thousand years and there's no one there. There's no one to tempt. There's no one to harass. He is all by himself. The Bible says, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. Jeremiah, thousands of years ago, he had a picture of what the world looked like during the very thousand years of the millennium here on earth, what it looked like here on earth. Well, you know, you think about the story of, of Lucifer, the story of the devil. You know, in the beginning, he wanted to be like God. He was this exalted angel, the scripture tells us. And yet he was not content with his position. He wanted, as created being, to be above the creator. And so he made war on the throne of God. 
He made war on the very principles of the foundation of God's throne. He made war on the law of God. And yet we know that he was cast out. And one thing that the devil could not do, that only God can do, is create. God created this world. He created beautiful. In the first two chapters of Genesis, you read how God spoke everything to an ex into existence. Can you imagine the devil looks onto that and thinks, I want to be able to do that too. But he could not. He was a created being. He could not create. And during these thousand years, this is really interesting because what happens just prior to those thousand years, the world is brought back to its primal condition before creation. It is devastated. It becomes like a, a busos without form and void. And the devil is there for a thousand years. It's almost like, okay, devil, show if you can create. Show if you can bring anything to pass. And of course, after those thousand years, the earth looks exactly the same as it did in the beginning of those thousand years. And this is, again, a vindication of God's supremeness and sovereignty as creator of heavens and earth. What will the saved and redeemed be doing during the thousand years? Because they are in heaven during these thousand years. But what will they be doing? You know, sometimes we see pictures of heaven. And, you know, it's like a little angel sitting on a harp, uh, sitting on a cloud and playing the harp. You know, these pictures. And people say, you know, well, I don't know if I'm so attracted to heaven if that's all we're going to be doing. You know, I don't really particularly like playing harps or wearing crowns or whatever. But there's more to heaven than just that. Heaven, you know, in our fantasy and in our ideas, we can depict somewhat what we might expect to be doing there. But I believe it will go far beyond even our uh, dreams, far beyond anything that we can imagine. Revelation chapter 20 gives us an interesting insight about some of the things that will be going on in heaven. Revelation 20 verse 4, I'm sorry about those verses that are not in there, but we'll read them from the text here. Revelation chapter 20 verse 4, listen to what it says. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. These souls that are in heaven, the Bible says, judgment was committed to them. Now, what type of judgment was committed to the saints in heaven? Well, Paul gives us a little bit of insight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? He says, the saints are going to judge the world. They're going to judge angels. What kind of angels? Well, certainly not the angels that are with God, because do they need judging? No, these are the fallen angels that sided in this controversy with Lucifer. The judgment of God, the utter judgment upon the enemy power is also, we are going to take part in that as God's going to open up his books and show all the great controversy in great detail. You know, when those books are opened in heaven, and we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. The Bible talks about books in heaven. There might be a, another way that God is going to reveal his judgments. But whatever it may be, there's going to be an insight given to the saints regarding God's judgment and God's plan and his righteous works. You know, not only concerning the angels, the fallen angels, but also concerning souls that we might, people that we might have expected to be in heaven, but end up not being there. I heard one person say, he says, there will be three surprises in heaven. Surprise number one, that you are there, right? Surprise number two, that um, you thought that someone that would be there is not there, right? You thought someone would be there, but they're not there. 
and then you thought someone would not be there, but they end up being there. That's the third surprise. So there are really three surprises in heaven. And there's going to be a lot of explanation that will need to be done. Think about the story of Stephen. Stephen was um, the first Christian martyr. And when he was being stoned to death because of, his faith, because of his faith, he was looking at a person standing there amongst those that consented unto his death. And one of the men that was standing there was none other than Saul, which later became known as Paul, the great apostle to the Gentile world. Now, can you imagine Stephen coming to heaven and Paul coming to heaven and Stephen sees Paul there? And the last thing that he remembers is that he consented to his death, him being stoned. I mean, some explanation is going to be done. Some, and the, this beautiful period of these thousand years is that God is going to open up the books in heaven. He's going to open up to his works, to his judgments, and everyone is going to be able to look in there and know why someone has been saved or why someone has not been saved. God is not going to keep these things secret, hidden for eternal eternity, eternal ages, that you go around wondering why this certain person is not in heaven or why someone is there. Everything is going to be on display. That's the type of God we serve. And so when it's talking about judgment in Revelation 20, it really is talking about an insight, a judgment into the very works of God, participating in the vindication of God's name and his glory and his character because we will see that in all his works, he is righteous indeed. Psalms 145 and verse 17, it says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. That's something that we will be able to proclaim during these thousand years as God opens up these books and reveals his, um, his character and his purpose and his plans uh, to us. The next question that, that we put up here regarding the prophecy of Revelation 20 is what will happen at the close of the thousand years? We've seen that at the beginning of the thousand years, we have the second coming and the great resurrection. Then we have during the thousand years, uh, the saints will be in heaven and that they will have an insight into the very works of God. And during the thousand years, the devil is bound on this earth. He's chained to this earth. But what will happen at the close of the thousand years? Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Can you imagine this great city, New Jerusalem, in heaven, is now coming down from heaven, adorned as a bride what a beautiful picture. In the city are the people of God, which of course is the bride of Christ himself. Now this city as it condescends, as it comes down from heaven, will, situate, will be situated on earth. And in the ancient scriptures of the prophets, in the prophet of Zechariah, we read about this event in Zechariah 14. And listen to what it says. Thus the Lord my God will come. And all the saints with you. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Now, you know, these prophecies, sometimes there's a little bit of confusion in these prophecies because there are prophecies talking about the second coming of Christ. But those prophecies tell us very clearly, show us very clearly that Jesus will not step onto this earth. As a matter of fact, we just read it there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When Christ comes, the resurrection happens, and then those that are living and those that are raised will meet the Lord in the air. 
and then we will go to the place that he has prepared in heaven. But after the thousand years, when the new Jerusalem comes down and all the saints come down to this earth, new Jerusalem will be planted right there on the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus will walk on this earth once more. Now, we don't know what that city is going to what it's going to look like. It talks about a golden city. We have no idea. And all the artists that try to depict it, I, I believe they do a pretty bad job, actually. But you can think of what it must be, must be like. Uh, it's probably far beyond what we can even imagine. Now, what will happen to Satan after the thousand years? Because as Jerusalem comes down and the saints are in the city, remember that the earth is still like a bottomless pit. The earth is still in abyssos and uh, uh, desolated uh, because of what had happened at the coming of Christ and prior to that. Now, what will happen to Satan after the thousand years that was bound to this earth for that period? Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 and 8. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. There will be one last final deception under Satan himself after these thousand years. The next verse says, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, there we have those words, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. So the devil goes forth to deceive one last time, and he goes forth to deceive those on the earth. Now, question, who is on the earth at this time? Because remember, when Jesus Christ came the second time, the resurrected were taken to heaven, the living were taken to heaven, the devil was bound to this earth, uh, the wicked were slain by, by the brightness of his coming, so there is no one on this earth to deceive. Well, let's look at Revelation 20. What does it say? Something else happens after the thousand years. Verse 5 of Revelation chapter 20 says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So in the book of Revelation, we learn about two resurrections. We have the first resurrection, which happens when Christ comes the second time. And then we have the second resurrection, which happens after the millennium or after the thousand years when the new Jerusalem comes down and Satan is released for a short time, the second resurrection happens and he deceives all those that are part of that second resurrection and he wants to now attack the very city of God. He wants to make his final assault on Christ and his kingdom. Now, the Bible talks about the second or, or the two resurrections in scripture quite a bit. Let's go to a couple of verses where we read about these two resurrections that will happen. Acts chapter 24 and verse 15, the Bible says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. There will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So clear from scripture, there's going to be not one resurrection, but two resurrections. A resurrection of the just, a resurrection of the unjust, a resurrection of the righteous, a resurrection of the wicked. Now, the resurrection of the righteous happens before the thousand years, but the resurrection of the wicked happens after the thousand years when Satan is released for a short period of time. Let's read it again. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations 
which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now the words here, Gog and Magog, it's interesting. Those are nations that you encounter in Old Testament stories. And again, it's again an echo of the past. Um, in the ancient times, Gog and Magog were actually nations that were enemies of Israel. You read about them in the book of Ezekiel, for example. And these are now depicted here in the end of time as this massive army under Satan himself, commander in charge, Satan, attacking the city of God, where now spiritual Israel is inside of that city. Those that are part of Christ, those that are a part of takers of Christ's grace, those that are sons and daughters of Abraham by faith, spiritual Israel is now under attack by Gog and Magog. The word Gog actually means, and this is kind of interesting, it means covered. And the word Magog means multitudes. Now think about that. Multitudes have been covered by the lies of Satan. And now they are part of this massive army that makes, makes its attack on the very city of God, New Jerusalem, when it has come down from heaven there after the thousand years. But what will happen, what will Satan and all the ungodly do at this time? Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, it says, They went on up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. It's quite a tragic scene because when you really think about it, every single person that will be standing outside of New Jerusalem on that day could have been inside of that city by faith. It was not that Jesus said, well, you're not part of it. They decided not to be part of it. They decided to rebel. They decided to not accept the invitation of love. Every single person could have been inside of the city, and yet now they try to take the city by force. It's kind of, you know, salvation by works to, ex to its extreme. They're going to take in the city by their own works. Instead of trusting in the Lamb and believing in the Lamb, Christ Jesus, and taking heed to that, in to that invitation, they could have been inside of those walls. They could have been inside of that city. What takes place while the ungodly surround the city? This is the final events here. Revelation 20, verse 11 and 12, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. There's a final judgment scene that now takes place as all humanity is really represented on that, on that scene there, either within the city or without the city. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 and 11 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will come a time, according to the Bible, that every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. There will be an understanding um, of what he has done, even though there, might not, there, there will not be a true conversion in those that are standing outside of the city. There will not be an, an, a, a true sorrow for sin, but there will be an acknowledgement of what God has done for them. God is not gonna allow anyone to pass away to, um, to not be part of his, of his um, kingdom until they have understood why 
They are not part of that kingdom. And you can imagine the scene there um, on that day as the great controversy is, is, is depicted for, the, for one last time, how Satan fell from heaven and how man fell by deciding to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and how the promise was given in the Garden of Eden already that a promised seed would come. How that fulfilled in Bible prophecy in the birth and incarnation of Jesus Christ. How Jesus Christ ministered time and time again in raising up the weak, in healing the sick, in preaching the gospel, in casting out demons. Over and over again in all his life, he testified that he was putting the character of God on display and inviting humanity to be part of his kingdom. Kingdom, an eternal kingdom. He was betrayed by his very close, by a very close friend. He was betrayed and put to death by his very own people. And his crucifixion, his death on that cross, was uh, uh, was a picture of the love of God and to the extent of God's love that He was willing to give the life of His only Son, so that our sins can be forgiven and paid for. Those scenes, you know, you can imagine that for one last time it will be revealed the love of God in its fullness. What Christ did for us in the heavenly sanctuary and how Christ now has fulfilled his promise in establishing his eternal kingdom. All will behold those scenes. All will be judged. And then the final, final um, scenes of, of, of prophecy take place as we read about in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 9. The Bible says, they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The, the Satan and his army of hosts that have sided with him, that have decided for him, are now um, defeated by the fires that come down from heaven. God himself will now... Not only will he defeat the enemy, but now he has promised to remake, to restore this planet. As all the host of the evil one are defeated at that very scene there in Revelation chapter 20, now begins a whole new creation of this earth. And in, and in, the, in these last chapters of Revelation, we read about how that happens and what, and what uh, transpires. The last question we want to look at here is what happens after Satan and the ungodly are destroyed? When they are destroyed, when that fire comes down from heaven and utterly consumes the host of evil, the host of, of, of Satan, the very next events we read about is about a new creation, a new restoration of this earth. This earth that has been contaminated by sin for thousands of years. This earth that has been under the weight of oppression and sin and sorrow for thousands of years will be the center of the universe and it will be the center of God's kingdom as he will restore it and renew it and remake it. It's going to be a wonderful moment. From the very beginning, God in Genesis ordained this world to be a world where no sin would reign. And now after this long period of time, he will restore it. Listen to these verses in Revelation 21 as we come to the final chapters of Revelation. Revelation 21 and 22 talk about a world where there is no more sin, a world where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. 
Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away." Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And just as all the other prophecies have been true and faithful, just as all the prophecies have come to pass in the books of Daniel and Revelation, we can be sure that these final promises of Revelation 21 and 22, they will come to pass as well. Jesus himself will wipe every tear and all pain and suffering will be removed and this world will be recreated in the primal glory that God ordained it to have from the very beginning. What an event that will be. You know, when I read the creation story in Genesis, I sometimes wish I could be there and see God at work. When he said, let there be light, to actually see light being created by God. And when he said, let there be birds in the air and fish in the sea and creatures on the, on the, on the planet. What a, what a sight that must have been like to see God create. My friends, if we are faithful, we will one day see God create. We will see him recreate the earth. What a scene that will be. You know, and no artist can really picture in fullness what this new earth will be like. It will be more glorious than we can even imagine. It will be a scene of, of primal beauty where there is no stain of sin to be found, no trace of evil to be found. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 16, the Bible says, But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Are you seeking for a better land? Are you seeking for a better country? You know, even though we live in a, you live in a beautiful country here in Canada, a peaceful corner of the world, we still see traces of sin all around us. We still trace for sure that, we surely know that, you know, it's not a perfect place, far from it. But we can look forward to a world where there will be no more traces of evil, no more traces of sin. We look for a heavenly country, and God has prepared this for us. He's prepared a city for us. This is not a city where you have to lock your doors at night. This is not a city where you have to be afraid to go out at certain periods of the day. This is a city where God himself will be. This is a city of peace, a city of beauty, and a city in which there is no sin. Listen to the description of this city here in Revelation 21. It says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Verse 15 and 16, and he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city was laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. So, you know, it's, it's as high as it is as, as it is broad. It's a huge, colossal city here that we're looking at, and in this city, God's people will dwell. God's people will dwell with God himself. Of course, there's a new world to discover as well. We don't have to stay in that city, but the, both that city and this new world will be the home of the redeemed. Verse 12 says, Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. 
Powerful, beautiful description. The construction of its walls was of jasper and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. It's like transparent gold that you can look right through. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And the description goes on and on there in Revelation 21 and 22. A beautiful description of this new world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, he said the following in verse 45 and 46, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Once you find the preciousness of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, you will be willing to give up everything to purchase that. You will be willing to give up everything to obtain that. You see, the pearl of great price is Jesus Christ. And with Jesus Christ comes his kingdom that he has prepared for us. See, the glory of heaven is not first and foremost the golden streets. The glory of heaven is not first and foremost the beauties that God has created for us there, but it's because we will be there with our Savior. We will be there with the one that has paid his life for us. We will be with Jesus, the pearl of great price. And to behold him and to be with him and to dwell with him that is in itself worth every single, every single thing that we experience here. You know, sometimes we think that our challenges are so great here on earth. Sometimes we think that our sacrifices for the Christian, for our Christian faith are great. And certainly they are at times great and they are hard. But in the light of eternity, in the light of heaven, they will appear as nothing. They will appear worth it. Each and every uh, single challenge that we face will be worth the eternal glory that is awaiting us. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the bride of Christ. Being part of that city is being part of the bride of Christ. And being part of the bride of Christ today is being part of his church, of his movements that he is leading in Bible prophecy, a movement that remains faithful to God's word, a movement that has the commandments of God written in their hearts and in their lives. This is a beautiful, beautiful uh, movement to be part of because God has started it and he will also complete it. Verse 30, 23, it says the city in Revelation 21, verse 23, it says the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. No electrical bills anymore. Here Jesus himself shines as the light and he will lighten that city. It has the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. In Isaiah, you also have some beautiful depictions of this new earth, this new world that God will create. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6, the Bible says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. You know, it's not going to be animals eating animals anymore. They're going to be friends and they're going to, there's going to be harmony. There's going to be beauty that God has always ordained for this earth. You know, beyond all the, all the golden cities and the friendly animals, there's going to be a lot to explore, a lot of discoveries to be made as we travel throughout the universe and look at the creative works of God. You can imagine what it's going to be like. Sometimes you may have questions about creation. Well, you can ask an angel, you can ask God, and he will give explanations of why he created and how he created and what a, what a wonderful um, experience that will be. 
1 Corinthians 2.9 says, As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So we can try to think what it will be like. We can use our imagination and we're allowed to do so. We can read scripture. And yet, we do not, we're not even coming close to what God really has in store for us because it's far beyond anything that we can imagine, far beyond anything that we could possibly think of what God has prepared for those that love him. We talked about earlier the Eden to Eden perspective. The scriptures are written in the, with the Eden to Eden perspective. There is an Eden that has been lost. There was an echo from the past that resounds in us and tells us that we're living in a world that is not supposed to be the way it is. God had something else in store from the beginning. And yet we also have a perspective of Eden in the future. Prophecy shows us that a new Eden is going to be made in the very end. And we're living between those Edens. We are journeying from the tree of life that has been lost in the first Eden to the tree of life that will be in the new Eden. Revelation talks about a new tree of life there in chapter 22. And it talks about that tree of life being for the healing of the nations. That's where God's people will surround that tree. You can imagine that scene when we get to heaven, when we get to that new earth. The tree of life will be there for the healing of the nations. And it's my prayer that we will be there around that tree, that we will be in that city, that we will be in that world that God has in store for us. Revelation 22 verse 4 says, They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. They shall see his face. We cannot see the face of Jesus right now. We can see his face in Scripture. We can see his character in Scripture. And yet we do not have that face-to-face communion with God and with Christ. Sin has separated us. And yet at that moment when we come to the, to the second coming of Christ, to the millennium, to the new world, we will be able to see the face of God. We will be able to see the face of Christ. We will have that close communion with them, that close connection with them. And it's only possible when we surrender our lives to Christ today so that he, we will have a place secured in that kingdom. And Jesus Christ has invited you and me to put our faith and trust in him, in his death and resurrection, in what he's doing even right now as our heavenly high priest in the most holy place of the sanctuary. We can bring our sins to the sanctuary. They will be blotted out according to the new covenant so that when Christ comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords, we may be pure, we may be forgiven of sin and that he can take us to that kingdom that he has prepared for us. He wants to do that for you. He wants to do that for me. And the purpose of prophecy is not just for us to know what the future is going to hold. The purpose of prophecy is to prepare us for this kingdom that will be restored very soon. And I pray that we will be amongst those that will enter into that kingdom. Let us pray in closing. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for this journey of prophecy. We want to thank you that you've been with us as we've gone through the pages of the book of Daniel and Revelation. There's certainly a lot more to study and a lot more to discover. But indeed, you have been with us and you've revealed a lot of truth to us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for these incredible prophecies that show us where we are in the scope of time. Lord, we have seen that we are living close to your coming, close to the restoration of all things. 
And we pray that as we move to the final scenes of this earth's history, that we will be found faithful to you, that you will place your seal upon us, your seal of approval, your commandments in our hearts and in our minds, so that we will be part of your kingdom, Lord, that will last forever and ever. We long to see your face, we long to be with you, and we long to dedicate our lives to the cause that we love, the truth that we love. Thank you so much for being with us, and I pray that as our studies in Scripture continue, that you will continue to enlighten us and show us your plan and purpose for each of us individual. Thank you for being with us throughout this series, and I pray that your prophecies may transform our hearts so that we may be yours and yours alone. And we thank you for your goodness. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.